One of my favorite Christmas movies has a very poignant beginning. And so I was able to find it and download it, and I want to show it to you. It's only a minute and a half to two minutes long. You'll probably recognize the movie the moment you see this. If you do, keep your mouth shut. I don't want anybody else to be distracted. Just focus on what you're listening to. Craig, have you got the volume up? Okay. No, it's not. something beyond anything that he could do. It's not even his fault. But he's taking ownership over this problem. And he ends up in a bar. And he's sitting at the bar and he prays. He's tears in his eyes and it's just the, the depth of passion in, in, in Jimmy Stewart's uh, face and the way that he's acting. And he's, he's, he literally says, God you know I'm not a praying man. But if you're up there and you can hear me, I need you to help me. Now, I don't like the theology of this movie. I mean, I'm not going to get into that this morning. But what I see here is an individual who is facing something that is insurmountable, overpowering, to the point you heard the angels talking, saying... He's about to commit suicide. He is that desperate. And he's not a praying man. He's not one who normally would turn to God. 
He's one who normally would just try and do for himself. But the people who gathered around him, his friends, his loved ones, the people with whom he has had relationship for the last 40 plus years, have acknowledged and recognized that he is in desperate struggle right now, and they have gotten on their knees on his behalf. That is a powerful, powerful statement of what it means to be a child of God. And the impact and the influence that one of us can have on another human being's life. So, turn with me now to 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, we are literally, I think, unless God changes my plan, this is the next to the last sermon in our series of looking at First John. And we are in chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God shall give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. That's kind of a nebulous thing. And we're going to look at that first. And then we're going to back up to the top of this section. Um, This this discussion in verses 16 and 17 that John is, uh, is bringing out. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. Now, first of all, if anyone sees his brother, tells us that John is talking to Christians about praying for Christians. Okay? He's not talking about praying for sinners who are sinning. He's talking about praying for Christians who are sinning. He says, if anyone sees his fellow Christian committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give the person life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he goes on to say, there is this sin that leads to death. And I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And honestly, this is an area that is very, very frustrating. I mean, and before I get into what I'm going to say, I don't want to go into a 30 minute long dissertation from a congregation, but what have you learned? What have you been taught What has been your understanding of what John is saying here about this sin that leads to death or this sin that does not lead to death? Have you ever gotten any teaching on this at all? Talk to me. I'm not sorry. I, I couldn't. I couldn't hardly hear anything you said. Okay, yeah, 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 okay. 
Anyone else? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And to follow that up, I kind of still kind of believe that because even with people who cast up a storm, they'll use God's word, Jesus, you know, and cast it, but you never hear cussing about the Holy Spirit. Hmm. I don't know if there's, I don't know. Okay. Uh, Simply not believing in God. Not believing in God. Okay. Anybody else? When I was a kid, I was reared in the Roman Catholic faith. And when I went through catechism, which is the, um, the Sunday school, if you will, only we had it on Saturday afternoon, um, we were taught about what we believed. And one of the things we were taught were called uh, were di- were the divisions of sin, if you will. They, 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 they termed it venial or mortal sins. Okay, There are some people who say that this passage of scripture is the basis for that theological belief between a venial and mortal sin. I don't subscribe to that, but I'm just saying that is a teaching of the Catholic faith. And it goes back thousands of years. And basically what it says is that there's there's basically two categories of sin. One is kind of like what Jesse was saying. Um, sins that we do as Christians but aren't going to damn us to hell. And then there are sins that that are the mortal sins that if you die having committed that sin and not confessed and repented of that sin, it will damn you to hell. I was reading a scholar that said that um, this idea of mortal and venial sin, although it's not his practice, he said his thought was that um, that there's this that, that anything that violates the Ten Commandments is mortal sin. But losing your, um, your, 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 losing your temper and speaking rat harshly to somebody in a rash way without intending to cause harm, but causing harm is likened to a venial sin. He didn't use the terms, but he said, if you're comparing apples with apples, this is the best way I can describe it. So violating the Ten Commandments, that's the one that will damn you to hell. Cussing out somebody because you're angry, it's not as bad. The reality is, if you go to James, the book of James, it says if you break one part of the law, you are guilty of breaking all of the law. One of the one of the writers that I read this uh, in preparing for this said, think about it this way, okay, with this idea of what James is saying. If you're guilty of breaking one little facet of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. If I were to have a beautiful, beautiful piece of art glass installed right there on that window, if I paid thousands of dollars to have an artisan fashion a beautiful piece of fused glass, not stained and leaded glass, but fused glass, one solid piece of glass that's all beautiful artwork, and Beverly's outside using a a weed whacker next summer, and she catches trying to get the weeds out of this pea gravel here in the front of the church. And she catches a little stone from the pea, from the pea gravel bed while she's getting the thing with the weed whacker, and it throws it up and smashes through just a tiny little hole with some spider cracks in this piece of art glass. Is that glass broken? Now, if Ida 
throws this huge rock and smashes through and there's a hole this big, is that glass any more broken than, or not, it is more broken, I guess, but it's still damaged, it is still broken, it is still defaced. So this idea that I have sinned and it is the, it's the same as breaking all of the law, it's the whole point is you have damaged. It may not be a huge piece of damage, it may be this big, it may be this big, it may be this big, but it is still damaged. It is no longer as it was. And so this idea of sin that does not lead to death, I can't give you a definitive answer because thousands of years of Christianity, we haven't come up with a definitive answer of what John was saying. We're going to have to ask him when we get there what he was truly trying to communicate. But best guess is this idea, and I think Jesse said it, of willful sin. I know what I'm supposed to do. Or I know what I'm not supposed to do. And I go, who cares? I'm doing it anyway. And an attitude of, I'm going to get my way regardless of what God wants. So if I have a fellow Christian who has reached the point in their walk with God where they don't give a rip anymore. They're just going to do what they want to do regardless of what the what the Word of God says, or regardless of whether it's an acceptable act or not, that would be, in my mind, a sin that leads towards death. Because ultimately, if that, if nothing changes, if they don't repent and confess of that heart attitude, and ultimately the actions resulting from that heart attitude, they will come before the judgment bar of God and they will have to answer for it. And the reality is, in Hebrews it tells us, if you walk away from the only hope that you have, Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected, if you walk away from that, there is no other hope for you. And you end up eternally separated from God. Eternally damned. And so, this idea, I think, of what John is saying to us is, as we go about our day, if we have friends who are Christians, and we see them sinning, not a sin that leads to death. I'm not talking about somebody who's in an apostate situation. Somebody who's heading into this rebellious, I don't care about God anymore situation. But pray for them that are struggling just to live a normal life and they got stuff. Um, in the book of Song of Songs, I think it's Song of Songs, it might be Proverbs, it talks about the little foxes. The little foxes that, that spoil the vineyard, that spoil the harvest of the grape, the grape harvest. Be, why? Because they allow them to come and just mess things up and chew on the, on the low-hanging fruit. And so there's this idea that Christians or people who are followers of God have to guard against allowing, I hate to use the term, but venial sin. This idea of just not being Christ-like. Now, it is still a sin. It may not be that you're intending to be rebellious against God, but it is still a sin and you need to pray and confess and ask God to forgive you of it. And so when you see somebody whom you know as a follower of Christ walking down that path, acting in that way, the very first thing you need to do, according to what John is saying, is you need to get on your face before God. And you need to pray on their behalf. Because for whatever reason, 
they're not recognizing that they're walking that path. Or, they're farther along on the path of apostasy than you realize. Now, the other thing in verse 17, John, what does he say? If you're looking at John 7, John 1st John chapter 5 verse 17, does somebody have it out? What does he say there? Okay. And keep going. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him, who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself in Okay, sorry, I was, I, I'm glad that you read it all, but I, what I, what I was wrong in that I meant for us to look at 16, not 17. Sorry. The, cause I was like, that's not what I thought it said. 16 says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say you should pray for that, okay? And what you what you need to hear is what's not said there. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for that situation, but I'm not saying you shouldn't, okay? His admonition is, when you see someone who is starting to get careless with their walk, you should be on your face before God, praying for them. Now, the next step after that is you should come alongside them lovingly and talk to them face to face about what you're seeing. But before you even try to confront them, the very first thing you need to do is be on your face before God. Say, God, I have a great concern for my friend Evelyn because I see things going on in her world that I am perceiving are not Christ-like. And my concern is is that she's starting to, to walk away from you and her heart is not warm towards you. So Lord, would you begin to fan that flame? Would you help her? And then God, smooth the path between us so that I can now go to her and talk to her about what I'm concerned over. And may we have a good communication. All of this being prayer and prayed over long before you try to confront. Because if you try to confront without the prayer, mm -mm -mm. she will go out. Get out of my house. You have no business. But if I bathe it in prayer before I come, there's a greater likelihood that her heart is already going to be softened and that she's already going to be under conviction of the Holy Spirit and that she will receive my words and we can continue in relationship and hopefully she will get her her, her life back on track the way it needs to be for God. Now, I'm picking on Evelyn because I know that that's not the case with her. But I wouldn't have picked on, you know, somebody over here because, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Now, that's the ultimate, okay? That's the ultimate. The lesson is, pray for your brothers and sisters who are struggling in their walk because it's important, and then go confront them and talk to them. But there's, there's more to it, and that's what I want to focus on for these last few minutes. Go back now to verse 14 through 15. This is the confidence that we have toward God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, 
We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. I have heard these verses used so many times over my 40 plus years serving Jesus as proof that I can ask for anything and get what I ask for. Name it and claim it. I have faith. I have confidence. I come to God. And as long as I pray according to his will, then I can do it. And if according to his will means I pray in Jesus' name. Well, you should pray in Jesus' name. But let me give you a little bit of a, 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 an insight into what I think this praying according to his will is. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he had a dinner with his friends. And after the dinner, it says that they went out to a place called the Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And they sang a few hymns. Actually, they sang a few hymns, then they went out. So they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's late, and this is a place where they normally would have spent the night anyway, and so that's what the disciples were thinking was going to be happening. And then Jesus says to his three most intimate friends, the ones that he always confided in, the ones that he, he kept close to him, and he said, would you guys come into, further into the garden with me? Let these guys just rest, but I need you guys to come alongside me and pray with me because I'm facing something right now that I need some support. And so he calls James and John and Peter. And he asks them to come into the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and join him in prayer. And so they kneel down or they sit down or they lay down. I don't, we don't know what their position was. And they begin to pray as Jesus has asked them to do. And it says Jesus goes a little farther into the garden, away from everybody. Still within eyesight because we have eyewitness testimony of what they saw happening. But Jesus goes farther into the Garden of Gethsemane. And what is his prayer? God, this is not what I want. This is tough. Yeah, I knew coming down that this was going to be happening. But now that I've reached the moment, oh God, I can't explain to you the... The, the angst, the anxiety, the fear that I'm experiencing right now. My humanity is screaming out, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Isn't there some other way? Please, can this cup not pass from me? Is there not any other way for your will to be accomplished? Can we do something that will work? Please. Not my will, but yours be done. When John, who was one of the three who was sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, heard Jesus say those words, it burned deep within him. So now when we read in 1 John, John saying, if we ask anything according to his will, there's much greater depth, much greater meaning to that than simply, you can have anything you name because you got Jesus in your life. Because John is talking about 
praying in such a way that you have wrestled through your own selfishness. You have gone through the, the, the light, fluffy stuff and gotten to the depths and the meat of your prayer and said, God, God, I need this from you. But I also need to say, if this isn't your perfect will for me, even though I need it, I'm willing to say, okay, I'll let go. That's what it means to pray according to God's will. And once you've done it that way, you can know that you will get what you've asked of God. Because you're no longer praying in a selfish way. John says in the very first part of this, this is the confidence that we have toward him. We can know that we know that we know that we know that this is not a game. That God doesn't take this lightly. That God takes us very seriously when we pray. And we can know that we know that we know that we are literally tools in the hand of the Almighty to come alongside those who can't do for themselves or won't do for themselves. So now, when your sister, your cousin, your grandma, your best friend, your coworker, your neighbor, your fellow student says to you, would you pray for me? It's a totally different perspective for me. When I receive prayer requests through the through the email that we have for the church or through the Facebook page that we have, you don't see every single one of them. Some of them I screen out. But I pray over every one of them. But I want to, I want you to know that when, that when I tell someone I'm going to pray for them, I am very careful to not say that glibly. I also use the caveat. And believe me, it's not a, it's not a way of getting out of it. But I use the caveat when I say to them, I'll pray for you. I say, I will pray for you as often as God brings you to my remembrance. Because if I say, I'll pray for you every morning. I may or I may not. But every time God brings that person to my heart, I take a moment to pray. But again, I pray not my will, but thine be done. One of the things I learned um, long, long, long time ago when, when Elaine Pettit was here and when Alfred and Barbara Hill were here, both of them taught me this. Before you actually pray for somebody, when they ask you to pray for them and you're right there in the moment, take a moment to pray before you pray. And the prayer that you offer before you pray is, Father, 
How should I pray for this person? How should I pray? You know, I mean, should what should I say that would be within your will, beneficial to them, and bring about the advancement of your kingdom? Because the reality is, folks, there are, well, I can name one person that who attended our church for more than a decade who had a physical ailment that we continued to pray over and God, in his wisdom, chose to never heal. How does that affect the person and their struggle and their faith if they never get the healing? Well, I don't have enough faith. They didn't have enough faith. We didn't pray the right words. No. But if we communicate to the person that we're praying for, I'm going to pray as God leads me, and we're going to trust that God's perfect will is going to be accomplished in your life. We're going to ask God for the desires of our hearts, because he tells us that. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. But it's been... It's been wrestled through that Gethsemane filter, if you will. My desires are his desires. My will is his will. My choice is his choice. In, in the Church of the Nazarene, in Wesleyan Arminian theology, we talk about what's called entire sanctification, the second blessing, the work of God in our life. After we are Christians, we come to a point where we, where we say, God, I want you to be not only my Savior, but I want you to be my Lord. Well, one of the things that, that some of the old timers used to say is that they would bring the unknown bundle to the altar and lay it on the, on the altar. Well, the unknown bundle is simply saying, God... I have no idea what my future holds, but I'm giving it to you now. And I'm releasing my control over that future. And I'm saying to you, my answer is yes. Regardless of what is coming down the path to me, I'm giving you ahead of time a yes to all of it. It's consecration. It's allowing God to be Lord. It's Gethsemane in advance. Because, I'll be flat out honest with you, I'm hesitant to say this because this is being recorded for posterity's sake. In the last days when my friend whom I shared with you about earlier this morning, who was struggling with cancer, I was asked to pray for them. I couldn't pray for their healing. Even though there was no indication that they were in the last days of their life. But I couldn't, I just felt felt checked in my spirit that I couldn't pray for their healing. So I prayed for comfort for them. I prayed for their family. I prayed for God's perfect will to be done in their lives. I prayed for the kingdom of God to be advanced as they went through this walk, whatever the path was that God had laid before them. But I couldn't pray for healing because I felt checked in my spirit to not pray for healing. I couldn't say that to them. That would have been totally inappropriate. But at the same time, if I'm going to be true to who I am in Christ, I listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God as I pray for them. And that's what I'm talking about, this Gethsemane thing. God, not my will, your will. God, not what I think is right, you're what you think is right. God, I give it to you and I take my hands off of it. It is yours to do whatever you see fit. This is my heart, God. 
And as John said in chapter 5, verse 14, I can have confidence because of who I am in Christ, knowing that God hears me and that I have what I've asked for because I've already done the wrestling. I've already gone through the Gethsemane over this. This is God's purposes, God's plans, God's name be glorified, and I'll shout glory regardless of what happens. But that doesn't keep me from praying. It doesn't absolve me from the requirement or the duty to pray. It's still mine to lift to the Father. It's His to choose the outcome.